0: Hi, everyone. I'm Alistair Stevens, and welcome to the 21st session of There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-Earth. This week, we discuss chapters four and five of The Fellowship of the Ring, unmasking a benevolent conspiracy for Frodo, or at least focused on Frodo, and then crossing the hedge and leaving the Shire for the first time, and immediately, of course, falling foul of the magic of the Old Forest, and meeting one of the most controversial characters in all of Tolkien's work. You can interact live here in the YouTube chat or on Twitter using the hashtag T-A-B again, that is T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. I will see all of those tweets right here. Or if you support Point North Media on Patreon at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, then you can take part in the Discord Discord chat, excuse me, uh, where I can see all of your messages as they unfold. Um, You can also email pointnorthmedia at gmail.com through the week if you have other thoughts or thoughts which require a little more space to expound upon than Twitter or even the Discord chat will afford you. Speaking of questions and comments, it was my intention to to fill the gap in last week's production schedule with the long-awaited listener Q&A. But the more I worked on that Q&A, the greater it became, the longer it became. It was a tale that grew in the telling, of course. So it will be with you within the next few days as soon as it is finished. The questions are are fascinating and subtle, focusing on the text, focusing on the deep, deep backstory to Tolkien's creation, and also focusing on the very approach that we're taking here on There and Back Again and the kind of textual validity of that approach, which I find completely fascinating. There are also, of course... number of questions about Mr. Tom Bombadil. Um, And that seems to be a good place to explore the deep history and and some of the speculation surrounding Tom Bombadil. So it seemed like a good idea to postpone that until after this session and kind of use that as, as a brief respite between our discussion of Tom this week and then our much more full discussion of Tom next week. I am not going to get into the questions of Tom Bombadil's identity, This week, that is going to wait because next time we're going to have some interesting discussions, one discussion between Frodo and Tom, of course, and one discussion between Frodo and Goldberry, which will address directly who, what Tom Bombadil is. My intent this week is simply to allow his natural charm to wash over us all and and win us over to his side. Hopefully. Speaking of other plans for the future, he said, as he disentangled himself from his microphone in order to retrieve the copy of Baron and Luthien that is on his desk, we will be talking about Baron and Luthien within the next few weeks, probably around the beginning of July. This book came out just a couple of weeks ago. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. Breathtaking. And it is very likely, as Christopher Tolkien acknowledges in his introduction to the book, probably the last of his father's works that he will edit and compile. And there's a very good chance that it will be the last of his works that will be edited and compiled by anyone. Christopher Tolkien is currently 93 years old, and it is unlikely that there will be another volume of Tolkien's works appearing at really any point in the future. So this may be the final punctuation to Tolkien's body of work and is therefore academically worthy of our interest, but also it is just just a luminous piece of work. Christopher Tolkien has done such a masterful job of editing and compiling his father's work over the course of the last 30 or 40 years that it really has begun to rival his father's work in its ambition, I think. Uh, the work that Christopher Tolkien has done, really from Unfinished Tales all the way through the history of Middle-earth, all the way to Baron and Luthien, you know, he has compiled just so much. Pretty much everything that Tolkien ever wrote down has now been published in one form or another, which is a wondrous thing. And, and in immensely valuable thing. I'm very, very grateful that we have it. So we're going to talk a little about Baron and Luthien probably at the beginning of July, probably right after the July 4th celebrations here in the United States. So if you haven't yet picked up your copy, I urge you to absolutely do so. You will not regret it. And I should say there have been some open questions about whether or not one needs to have a deep knowledge of the Silmarillion in order to enjoy Baron and Luthien, whether you need to read this as, you know, the last volume in this I suppose if you count everything, 16-volume-spanning History of Middle-Earth series, and you absolutely don't. You can go and pick up Baron and Luthien and read it and love it and enjoy it if you have never read anything but The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And arguably, even if you haven't read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, though, if you haven't read those books, I'm a little unsure about why you're listening to this podcast. Hey, you make your own choices. I'm not here to, to instruct you. I am here simply to guide you through Tolkien's Middle Earth. Um, yes, Errol the Young is saying here in the YouTube chat, not having another volume of Tolkien's work, is like saying you never get to eat candy again. Just a sad feeling. Yes, I must admit I've been somewhat preoccupied with thoughts of the elves passing into the West. All the things that Sam has been saying in the Fellowship of the Rings so far, The uh, the notion of a declining culture, the notion of magic leaving the world. And yes, honestly, It is a little heartbreaking to to think in those terms when we're considering the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, but we are pretty much at that point, sad to say. Yes. Um, Oh, uh, Fina says, so I guess I shouldn't wait until I can pick it up secondhand. You absolutely can. It's not going to... it's not going to reflect upon our, our core discussion here on there and back again. So if you want to wait and pick it up or if you want to wait until it, it appears in a stocking or appears under the Christmas tree, you know, at the end of the year, then you can absolutely do that thing, too. That will be a standalone discussion that you'll be able to, uh, to go back to at any point. So if you want to take part in the discussion as it is aired, then... Pick up your copy now and read it. You've got about two, two and a half, maybe three weeks at the outside. If not, don't worry. That will be a, a, a standalone discussion that you can enjoy at any point in the future. Great, good. All right. So let's get into it because we have uh, quite a lot of ground to cover this week. Two chapters, short chapters, but chapters which, nonetheless, contain a lot of of kind of thematic content. We're going to be looking at some of the primary thematic oppositions in Tolkien's work, in The Lord of the Rings certainly, but in really all of his work. The Old Forest is an interesting deviation from the path which we might expect the story to take. It it is notable in its omission from the Peter Jackson movie adaptations, and that I think is absolutely a wise choice. I think that specifically not including Tom Bombadil, was a very wise choice. And I am a fan and a defender of Tom Bombadil within the frame of the book. He is not an uncomplicated character. And I will certainly never tell you that you must, must, must love him. Or if you somehow fail to love him, then you just don't understand him enough. That I do not think is, is either fair or true. But I do think that, that it is important that we recognize how connected to the, the novelistic aspect of the Lord of the Rings, the mythic aspect of the Lord of the Rings, Tom Bombadil is, and he certainly wouldn't fit as well in any adaptation of this story, which sought to emphasise a more conventional plot structure, a more conventional conflict structure, a more conventional narrative structure in the broadest possible sense. So we will get to Tom and we will certainly take a look at the Old Forest and the Crossing of the Hedge. It is wonderful to have you all here with me today. I'm so glad that you are all here. I should say too, before we get into this, that today is my birthday. Today is my 39th birthday and I get to spend it here talking about Tolkien with all of you, which is pretty much the best. I am into that thing. So thank you all for joining me on this special, special occasion. With that said... Let's get into it. Let's get into our discussion here. And the first deviation that we will take in the course of these two chapters, because before we get to to, uh, Frodo's new residence, before we get the comforts of a bathtub, before we get the, the comforts of home, we're going to get a brief account of, well, the history of the Brandybucks, I suppose. Long ago, Gorondad Oldbuck, head of the Oldbuck family, one of the oldest in the Marish or indeed in the Shire, had crossed the river, which was the original boundary of the land eastwards. He built and excavated Brandy Hall, changed his name to Brandybuck, and settled down to become master of what was virtually a small independent country. His family grew and grew, and after his days continued to grow until Brandy Hall occupied the whole of the low hill and had three large front doors, many side doors, and about a hundred windows. The Brandybucks and their numerous dependents then began to burrow and later to build all round about. That was the origin of Buckland, a thickly inhabited strip between the river and the old forest, a sort of colony from the shire. Its chief village was Bucklebury, clustering in the banks and slopes behind Brandy Hill, uh, behind Brandy Hall, excuse me. The people in the Marish were friendly with the Bucklanders, and the authority of the master of the hall, as the head of the Brandybuck family was called, was still acknowledged by the farmers between Stock and Rushy. But most of the folk of the Old Shire regarded the Bucklanders as peculiar, half-foreigners, as it were, though, as a matter of fact, they were not very different from the other hobbits of the Four Farthings. Except in one point, they were fond of boats, and some of them could swim. Their land was originally unprotected from the east, but on that side they built a hedge, the High Hay, It had been planted many generations ago and was now thick and tall, for it was constantly tended. It ran all the way from Brandywine Bridge in a big loop curving away from the river to Hayes End, where the Withywindle flowed out of the forest into the Brandywine, well over 20 miles from End to End. But of course, it was not a complete protection. The forest drew close to the hedge in many places. The Bucklanders kept their doors locked after dark, and that was not usual in the Shire. So, the high hay, the hedge, runs for 20 miles from the Brandywine Bridge to Hayes End. It must be noted here that if you have a copy of The Lord of the Rings from earlier than 2004, that is not true. Before 2004, the high hedge ran, well, I guess in in the text the high hedge still ran 20 miles but we will later get an account of the distance to the brandywine bridge we will almost immediately in fact get an account of the distance to the brandywine bridge and that is incompatible with the length of the hedge itself in editions of the lord of the rings published prior to 2004 mary will say that it is 20 miles to the brandywine bridge which of course can't be true if Brandy Hall still butts up against the hedge and is the hedge itself is 20 miles long. So in versions of The Lord of the Rings published after 2004, Christopher Tolkien edited the distance to the Brandywine Bridge down to 10 miles, which is more in keeping with what seemed to be Tolkien's sense of the geography of this particular part of the Shire, or almost the Shire, I suppose. Um, This is a fascinating deviation into history because we rarely get accounts like this within the frame of the Lord of the Rings, particularly within the frame of the Shire. Gorindad Oldbuck, and we should note too, that Gorindad is, (laughs) in keeping with Tolkien's tradition of naming characters the most literal thing possible, Gorindad is actually the Welsh word for great-grandfather. So great-grandfather Oldbuck, head of the Oldbuck family, one of the oldest in the Marish, or indeed in the Shire, had crossed the river, which was the original boundary of the land, eastward. So prior to him crossing the river, this was not the Shire. This was just part of the country beyond the Shire. But he created this little colony. He created Buckland, if you like. Its chief village is Bucklebury, clustering in the banks and slopes behind Brandy Hall. And we see in that second paragraph part of the connection between the rest of the Shire and the Bucklanders, They honor the authority of the master of the hall, as the head of the Brandybuck family was called, but they don't necessarily identify too closely with these outlandish folk, with these, these odd hobbits from across the river. That speaks to us, I think, of the kind of specific insularism that we've discussed before throughout the shire everyone in the shire is suspicious of everyone else even within the bounds of the shire the four farthings are pretty much distinct from each other but they all are somewhat united with or united in a suspicion of buckland and the bucklanders in part it seems clear in the text because they like boats and some of them can even swim It's interesting to kind of question whether or not that fondness for the water came before or after the movement across the river. Certainly crossing the river would imply a certain fondness for boats. That would seem to be a necessity prior to the construction of of the bridges and the ferry. But we also get the sense here that hobbit culture becomes more insular very, very quickly. That those things which define hobbits can themselves be rather fluid. We talked about the three... Tribes of hobbits, which came originally into the Shire. That was only 1500 years ago. That was not such a terribly long time ago. But now those stories have passed almost out of memory completely. Now we connect ourselves with our immediate families. This is why hobbits are so interested in genealogy. We know who our people are, and we know in part who our people are because of the parts of the Shire from which they hail. Brandy Bucks stand apart physically geographically apart but they also stand kind of philosophically apart and yet not as apart as we might think i'm going to put this slide up again so that we can look at that last paragraph because it contains some very interesting detail their land was originally unprotected from the east but on that side they built a hedge the high hay hay here is used in its archaic sense meaning simply a hedge it is the high hay the high hedge That's it, they planted a hedge because their land was unprotected on the Eastern side. Well, they built a hedge. Rather than building a wall or building a fence or building something more artificial, they instead planted and now continually tend a hedge. It had been planted many generations ago, we're told, and was now thick and tall, for it was constantly tended. It ran all the way from the Brandywine Bridge in a big loop, curving away from the river to end where the Withywindle flowed out of the forest into the Brandywine, well over 20 miles from end to end. So this is a, a, a titanic hedge, and it is here explicitly for protection. But of course, we are told, it was not a complete protection. The forest drew close to the hedge in many places. So what is the hedge supposed to protect us from, Well, we're given the answer. It is the old forest itself. We are still seeking to delineate the Shire from the world around the Shire. The old forest here is the enemy. Thus, the hedge, in theory at least, is a fitting barrier. We will see when Frodo and the other hobbits cross out of the Shire, the kind of boundaries that we build to keep out other people, other beings, other men and dwarves and elves and so on, because we descend into the cut beneath the hedge and we have there a locked iron gate. A locked iron gate is an appropriate barrier for people who mean you harm, people who seek entry into the shire in in a covert and stealthy fashion. But that is not what the hedge is. The hedge exists only to block out the old forest. And then we get the thought the Bucklanders kept their doors locked after dark, and that also was not usual in the Shire. Are we supposed to think that that is simply evidence that the Bucklanders are more cautious, are more fearful, are less trusting than other hobbits? Well, perhaps, but its close association to the idea of the protection of Buckland by the hedge suggests that they are, in fact, guarding themselves from the forest itself. So what is the nature of the old forest? We'll get to that in just a little while, but we must understand that even in our introduction to Buckland, it is defined by the existence of the forest and the constant pressure of the forest upon the hedge, this encroachment of the forest itself, capital F, forest. We'll talk more about that as we move onward. Um, let me check the YouTube chat here. Uh, Princess Ostrich says, could you guys not just build a hedge there over the pond? That'd be much more homely and it would create a lot of gardening jobs. Very fair. Very fair. The Brandybuck strike me as their sh- <laughs> The Brandybuck strike me, says Marianne, as the shabby gentility hobbits. They still remember their coat of arms sort of thing. Certainly, it is interesting to question why it was that Gorondad Oldbuck thought it necessary to leave behind the other hobbits and create this colony. This doesn't seem to be a particularly hobbitish impulse. What is it that draws him over the river and what is it that therefore defines Brandybuck character? Certainly the other hobbits are skeptical of them, but they do seem to have a kind of fiercer sense of their own identity. That seems absolutely true and does match with that notion of shabby gentility. I think you're right. Though not all that shabby, uh, Brandy Hall is by far the largest Hobbit dwelling, Hobbit construction that we see in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. It is enormously capacious. Three front doors, numerous side doors, a hundred windows. This thing is immense. Just think about what that would look like. It occupies the entire hill. It makes Bag End look like a storage closet. It's fantastic. So the Brandy Bucks are powerful are wealthy are very much anchored in their own identity and that identity is a paradoxical one because they are all at once connected to the shire they are bound to the shire by the existence of the hedge but separated from the shire by the existence of the river and that i think that that paradoxical connection with the rest of the shire speaks eloquently on the subject of brandybuck identity and exactly what that means and i think that we can recall this description and the kind of the nature of buckland as we move forward into the book and we're thinking about how these hobbits in particular interact i talked last time about the ways in which our primary hobbits are related to each other frodo and merry and pippin and we will have the opportunity i think to to question their approaches to the wider world as those approaches reflect on their familial identities on their their heredity, if you like, so we'll we'll keep a sense of that as we go forward. but right now it is important to understand that that Buckland occupies this odd place in the shire, yeah Fina says, "I like the way the forest sneaked up to the hedge and was beaten back. It gives the forest something of vulnerability, even though it is so dangerous. Yes, the nature of the old forest, as I said, is something which is um, is, is curious and is deceptive, and, and certainly calls to mind Mirkwood, for example. The last time we saw a forest that had a kind of you know capital F identity in in Tolkien's work was Mirkwood. We will see again much more interesting examples of this. This idea will be developed still further. By the time we hit Lothlorien, certainly that will that will be eloquent on the subject. And then by the time we hit Fangorn Forest, we will definitely see a, a very different kind of forest, but, but certainly a kind of forest that speaks to the Old Forest too. We will get an opportunity to talk about the Old Forest this week, though we will also circle back around to it next time. Yes. Yes. Um, Angela says they built a large community, speaks of the need of defense too, maybe. Possibly, possibly, though um, his family grew and grew, and after his days continued to grow until Brandy Hall occupied the whole of the low hill. The Brandy Bucks and their numerous dependents then began to burrow and later to build all round about. Brandy Bucks and their numerous dependents there would suggest to me, rather than rather than a community banding together for defense, would just suggest a kind of prosperity. The Bucks themselves are wealthy, so wealthy, in fact, that they attract dependents. They attract communities which are reliant upon them in a very kind of Hobbitish fashion. This, this economically, to the degree that we understand the economics in Tolkien's world, economically, this isn't terribly different from Hobbiton. It's the same kind of hierarchical class structure. We have the Brandy Bucks themselves, an old family worthy of respect, certainly wealthy, and then we have the community which springs up around them, Bucklebury, clustering in the banks and the slopes behind Brandy Hall. So, I'm not sure that I would necessarily see this as an armed enclave of hobbits on the far side of the river as much as I would see it as as we're told. Basically an independent kingdom, but an independent kingdom that is defined by both the separation and this desire for unity. And we should note that we don't leave the Shire when we cross the river. In Frodo's time, we leave the Shire when we cross the hedge. So Buckland is still considered part of, of Hobbit culture, the Shire in the, the broadest cultural sense rather than in the strictly geographical sense. Yeah. Princess Ostrich asks, but who builds a hedge to defend from a forest? It seems like a disaster just waiting to happen. That's, that's fair, though Gildarts Winters points out hedges are nothing to mess with. Indeed, indeed. Um, good. Good. Oh, and Becca Eller, The Brandybucks are basically the Neville family—well-connected, wealthy, and lots of kids. Yes, that seems like a that seems like an apt comparison. Good. <laughs> All right. So that gives us our introduction to um, to Buckland in general, to to Brandy Hall specifically. But it also occupies an odd place in the narrative because we have just come out of a fairly kind of dangerous encounter you know we we feel oppressed as we arrive at the ferry and then we get this the, the reveal of mary but but we have a certain sense of pressure and we cross the ferry and now we are safe but before we're actually safe before we actually get to brandy hall the narrator takes the time to tell us about the history of buckland which is odd it suspends our sense of tension it suspends our sense of threat and imminent danger which would be legitimate I guess, is legitimate anyway, would be more expected if the danger had actually passed. But after this brief description, we look back across the river and we see the Black Rider. That is where Mary tells us that the Black Rider will have to ride 10 miles north in modern versions to the Brandywine Bridge and then cross and then come back down to Brandy Hall. And he's not going to be allowed to cross anyway because the Shire is just terribly secure, you guys. I mean, what could they do? Frodo has this wonderfully naive question later in this chapter when he asks how long they could hold out against the Black Riders. Not long. Not long, he asserts. The truth is, well, yes, not long at all. Good. So then we arrive at Brandy Hall and we get the first song that we are going to discuss this week. We are going to look at Sing Hey for a Bath at the Close of the Day. Sing, hey for the bath that close of day That washes the weary mud away A loon is he that will not Sing, oh water hot is a noble thing Oh sweet is the sound of falling rain And the brook that leaps from hill to plain But better than rain or rippling streams Is water hot that smokes and steams Oh water cold we may pour at need Down a thirsty throat and be glad indeed But better is beer if drink we lack And water hot poured down the back Oh water is fair that leaps on high In a fountain white beneath the sky But never did fountains sound so sweet As splashing hot water with my feet. This is maybe the most hobbity song, hobbitish song, hobbitesque song that we get in the Fellowship of the Ring. I completely adore this. And Dallas is calling out here, note to self, have a bath tonight. And Karen says, I love the bath song. I love the bath song too. It is absolutely unfettered joy. And it also speaks very importantly to the kind of virtues that we would expect from hobbits. Hobbits are, as we noted previously, civil. They are settled. They are cultured, I suppose, in a sense. Here we break down the virtues of water hot specifically. We capitalise the W and the H even when we switch them in in that last line there. Sing hey for the bath at the close of day that washes the weary mud away, a lunacy that will not sing a water hot is a noble thing. So Hey, you guys, baths are great. We are singing to the bath, the bath at the close of day that washes the weary mud away. The mud itself, of course, not necessarily weary, but the body that holds the mud, the body that is covered in the mud is at this point weary. Oh, sweet is the sound of falling rain in the brook that leaps from hill to plain, but better than rain or rippling streams is water hot that smokes and steams. What would an elf make of this song? Would elves agree with this? Would elves think that, well, sure, rain's pretty good and rippling streams are pretty good, but what you really want is a hot tub at the end of the day? No. We know pretty categorically, in fact, that elves would not agree. If we remember our first encounter with the Tralalalali elves back in The Hobbit, we felt very clearly that they were celebrating with an equal joy the beauty and the the excess, the abundance of the natural world. There, the fact that the river is flowing just speaks to its beauty. It is a natural thing to which they are primarily disconnected or from which they are primarily disconnected. It exists independently of them, but none of these things listed here exist independently of hobbits. There is no natural bathtub out there in the world. There is no natural mug of beer resting on a small low table next to the copper tub. Oh, water cold, we may pour it need down a thirsty throat and be glad indeed, but better as beer if drink we lack, and water hot poured down the back. So here we transition away from the natural world, better than rain or rippling streams or the brook that leaps from hill to plain, we transition away from these natural features to water itself. Water cold, we may pour it need down a thirsty throat and be glad indeed. Water's pretty great, even if it's contained not in its natural form out there in the world, but if we have a glass of water, if we have a a tankard or a bucket of water, yeah, it's, it's still good, it's still fine, but let me tell you, beer, pour some beer and then heat that water and pour it down your back, that is better still. Then finally, water is fair that leaps on high and a fountain white beneath the sky, but never did fountains sound so sweet as splashing hot water with my feet. In this final stanza, we get constructed water, we get water made civil. Fountains are not naturally occurring things. But still, what is better is the bath. And this is absolutely fundamental to Hobbit nature. Water out there in the wild, and by extension, the natural world in its entirety, is fine. It's good. We like it. We like the rippling streams. Awesome. Better than that, though, is water that is contained. Better than that is the natural world that is prepared for us. And we might think, by extension, of you know, plucking a berry from a bush or plucking an apple from a tree. These things are also pretty good but you know what's better than that still? Water that is turned to civility and turned to order and turned to beauty, like a fountain. A fountain's pretty great. We can take those berries and we can take those apples and we can, I don't know, chop them up. We can we can make them more civil. We can make them more compatible with, with culture and with society. And then they're pretty great. But ultimately, we turn this natural world to the purpose of comfort. Better than a Delicate, you know, uh, array of apple slices on a silver platter is a giant hot apple pie. That is the Hobbit philosophy. So, water in the natural world is fine. Water that is turned to the purpose of drinking and consumption is better. Water that is turned to the purpose of art and expression and decoration, better still. But the best water, the water hot, comforts us, soothes us, gives uh, a physical pleasure. This is all of Hobbit culture right here. As Karen says, calling this out in the YouTube chat, Alistair is paraphrasing my worldview. Karen, you might be a Hobbit. You might just be a Hobbit. I see there's some discussion discussion here of, uh, Gildarts Winter says, I love baths, but I, I also take a shower after in order to be sure I am clean. And Elizabeth Stevens says, my hair is still damp from my bubble bath today. Big, big fan of baths. I do think you can divide the world into those who love baths and those who don't. But what I love about this poem, as joyous as it is, and as silly and light as it seems, is that it so clearly represents Hobbit culture, right at the moment when we were about to be separated from Hobbit culture. I mean in a sense we already are. We're going to reveal the conspiracy. We're going to talk about the the burden that Frodo has taken up. We're going to talk about the 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 quest that has been laid upon him by chance if chance you call it, I suppose. But right now we are seeking refuge in the most hobbity thing possible, which is not the bath specifically, but rather the celebration of the natural world as it is turned to comfort, as it is turned to to calm and to soothing, and to also crucially, we must note here, to companionship and fellowship and community, because there are three tubs. Three tubs have been laid out here. And we are singing this song together. This isn't even a solo pleasure, as I would estimate, you know, most bathtubs are. You know, most bath experiences are going to be solo or solo adjacent to pleasures. But here we're getting the celebration of, of bathing in community, which is even more hobbity. This is distilled hobbish, hobbitishness right here and I absolutely love it. Yes, good. All right, let's let's uh, let's move on then to darker times, I suppose, to, to grimmer issues and to the reveal of the conspiracy itself. We begin here with Mary. Just this, my dear old Frodo, you're miserable because you don't know how to say goodbye. You meant to leave the Shire, of course, but danger has come on you sooner than you expected and now you are making up your mind to go at once and you don't want to. We are very sorry for you. Frodo opened his mouth and shut it again. His look of surprise was so comical that they laughed. Dear old Frodo, said Pippin, did you really think you'd thrown dust in all our eyes? You've not been nearly careful, careful or clever enough for that. You've obviously been planning to go and saying farewell to all your haunts all this year since April. We've constantly heard you muttering, shall I ever look down into that valley again, I wonder, and things like that, and pretending that you've come to the end of your money and actually selling your beloved Bag End to those Sackville Bagginses and all those close talks with Gandalf. "'Good heavens!' said Frodo. "'I thought i had been most careful and clever. "'I don't know what Gandalf would say. "'Is the Shire discussing my departure, then?' "'Oh, no!' said Merry. "'Don't worry about that. "'The secret won't keep for long, of course, "'but at present it is, I think, "'only known to us conspirators. "'After all, you must remember "'that we know you well "'and are often with you.' We can usually guess what you're thinking. I knew Bilbo, too. To tell you the truth, I have been watching you rather closely ever since he left. I thought you would go after him him sooner or later. Indeed, I expected you to go sooner, and lately we've been very anxious. We've been terrified that you might give us the slip and go off suddenly, all on your own like he did. Ever since this spring, we've kept our eyes open and done a good deal of planning on our own account. You're not going to escape so easily. We should note, first of all, that Pippin is not being... Rye here. He is not being sarcastic here. In chapter three, we get this quote. As they began to climb its first slopes, they looked back and saw the lamps in Hobbiton far off, twinkling in the gentle valley of the water. Soon it disappeared in the folds of the darkened land and was followed by Bywater beside its gray pool. When the light of the last farm was far behind, peeping among the trees, Frodo turned and waved a hand in farewell. I wonder if I shall ever look down in that valley again, he said quietly. So Pippin is paraphrasing him, but Frodo has done exactly what he described at least once. And I find that completely consistent with Frodo's character. Of course, he has been going around very quietly and mournfully saying farewell. I wonder if I shall ever behold this tree again. I wonder if I shall ever see this field again. I wonder if I can drink all of the beer that is left in the cellar of Bag End. I love this sense of fellowship. I love this community. I love the bond of loyalty that tie Mary and Pippin and, of course, Sam to Frodo and to his cause. And I love that it doesn't spring from revelation. There is no epiphany here. They have known, in fact, all along. And their decision to take care of Frodo, their decision to conspire with him slash against him, their, their decision to protect him and to look out for him, was born in sober judgment. They didn't know the stakes, of course, though we're about to find out that they had a better sense of the stakes than anyone could have anticipated and certainly knew about the ring a lot earlier than anyone could have anticipated. But here we are seeing simple Hobbit loyalty. This absolutely touches my heart in a very, very profound way. Oh, Errol is giving us a recap here. Yes, Pippin is 28 and Frodo is 50. So Frodo is literally old to Pippin, but it is said in jest. Yes, (laughs) dear old Frodo, said Pippin. Yes, Uh, Frodo is a generation older than the other hobbits, as we've discussed before. Uh, Both Sam and Merry are in their mid thirties, which is of course not mid thirties to human beings. They are in human terms, probably in their early twenties, but in human terms, Pippin is maybe... Seventeen, 18, I guess, that's probably the line that we're supposed to draw there. So he is full of youthful enthusiasm, and that's one of the things that we will continue to track. Tolkien almost never mentions it. You really have to pay attention to the chronology to understand exactly how old these hobbits are and how that informs their character, but it really does inform their character. Consider, though, the discussion that we had back when we were looking at the very first chapter, and I guess the second chapter, too, of The Fellowship of the Ring. By the time that we are capable of opposing the two pub conversations, Hamfast Gamgee, the gaffer's conversation in the first chapter, and then Sam's conversation in the second chapter, we were able to speculate about the changes wrought on culture in Hobbiton, in particular, by Bilbo's there-and-back-again adventure. Bilbo seems to have inspired the younger generation of hobbits. They look up to him. They seek to emulate him. They are not alarmed at the prospect of adventure in the way that even Bilbo's generation was, never mind the generations previous to that. They are far more bold, far more confident, and far more comfortable discussing the outside world. Any other hobbits... Well, and and we kind of get a sense of this as we move through the rest of this chapter, but other hobbits would be much more reluctant. But the adventuresome side of Bilbo's family seems to take this pretty much in stride, even the idea of conspiracy. Remember back in The Hobbit, the narrator was very concerned that Bilbo was going to lose his reputation, that he was going to be less than he was when he returned. Bilbo himself, of course, was very concerned with that. And ultimately, that was proven true and accurate. Bilbo did lose his reputation, but gained something else. And the thing that he gained was, as we discussed at the time, celebrity. He gained fame. And through the telling of stories, he seems to have put that fame to good use. He seems to have mobilized the younger generation of hobbits. Not all of them, certainly, but a few of them. And that is very important. We get, for example, Sam being taught to read, Sam loving poetry, loving the stories of elves. We get Mary's fascination with Bilbo's book, which we're about to discuss. These hobbits have been opened up to a wider world by Bilbo's adventure and by, more indirectly, the power of stories. They were, in a sense, opened up to this wider world by the book entitled The Hobbit in much the same way, I think, as many readers of The Lord of the Rings were, particularly when it was originally published. Yeah. Um, Let me see here. Yes, character is a powerful thing, says Guild Swinters, especially when it comes to age and hobbits. Yes. And Kimberly Slack says, I always forget how much more there is in the book than the movies. I love this. Yes, there really is so much more character, so much more character. And that's, I mean, understandable. Merry and Pippin, if you're looking at The Lord of the Rings from a strictly narrativistic perspective, it's tough to argue the necessity of Merry and Pippin. I, I will stress... I adore both of them. I adore their solo adventures at least as much as I adore them in the context of the Fellowship. But you could tell the Lord of the Rings story, the core narrative, without them. But there is so much characterization here. There is so much to love about them and so much complexity and subtlety. It is, I think, a fair criticism of The Hobbit that the dwarves are not distinguished from each other as much as they may be. And as I mentioned before, in earlier revisions of The Hobbit, they were much more distinguished. In much more in, in earlier versions of The Hobbit, every dwarf had four or five lines through the course of the book. And as Tolkien revised and revised and revised, he distilled those down. So instead, we get eight hobbits about whom we don't really care or know anything. And then we get some, hob, uh, some dwarves, excuse me. We get eight dwarves or so about whom we do not care but we get some, some more developed characterization in the remaining dwarves. Here, I think it's possible to argue that you have to pay such close attention to Merry and Pippin to get their the fullest measure of their character, that it is somewhat trivial to overlook them. And, and one of the things that I will be urging you as we read The Lord of the Rings, particularly if this is your second, third, fifth, fiftieth time through this book, is to pay very close attention to Merry and Pippin, because they are distinct and wonderful and complex characters who are... I think at least as interesting as as Frodo and Sam. And I will also, as we move through, because I've received some emails this week talking about Frodo. And yes, it's super easy to love Sam because Sam is just insanely heroic. Sam is the Captain America of the, (laughs) complicated. Uh, Sam is heroic. I'll say no more than that. And it's easy to love Sam. He is is possessed of an abundance and excess of virtue. And it's a little harder to love Frodo, particularly as we get into the end of the book. But I will urge you as we move forward to pay very close attention to Frodo, too, because I think his character is revealed in in a close study of of what he says and does. And sometimes the conflict between those two. Yeah, good. Uh, Gildart says, uh, the movies have so little in the way of character when it comes to making a comparison to those films and the books. Dunno, I think the book's almost always best. Yes, that's that's fair. That's definitely fair. Okay. So let's take a look. We, now we know that they are uh, conspirators. Now we know that Frodo has been watched for quite some time and that Merry at least expected him to follow in Bilbo's footsteps, which seems to be a recognition of that burning desire, which was was kindled within Frodo even prior to his conversation with Gandalf. He's been taking longer walks. He's been seeking news of the world outside the Shire. He has been becoming restless and that has been observed. And remember, 17 years have passed. So Mary has been waiting for it for a long time. They've been waiting for this moment for quite some time. Sam, cried Frodo, feeling, the, feeling that amazement could go no further and quite unable to decide whether he felt angry, amused, relieved, or merely foolish. Yes, sir, said Sam, begging your pardon, sir, but I meant no wrong to you, Mr. Frodo, nor to Mr. Gandalf, for that matter. He has some sense, mind you. And when you, when you said go alone, he said, no, take someone as you can trust. But it does not seem that I can trust anyone, said Frodo. Sam looked at him unhappily. It all depends on what you want, put in Merry. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin, to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours, closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid. But we are coming with you, or following you like hounds. And after all, sir, added Sam, you did ought to take the elves' advice. Gilda said you should take them as was willing, and you can't deny it. I don't deny it, said Frodo, looking at Sam, who was now grinning. I don't deny it, but I'll never believe you are sleeping again, whether you snore or not. I shall kick you hard to make sure. You are a set of deceitful scoundrels, he said, turning to the others. But bless you, he laughed, getting up and waving his arms. I give in. I will take Gilda's advice. If the danger were not so dark, I should dance for joy. Even so, I cannot help feeling happy, happier than I have felt for a long time. I have dreaded this evening. As Elizabeth says here in the YouTube chat, choked up reading this last night. Yes, yes. There are so many moments here, so many moments of subtle characterization, which I just adore. Yes, sir, said Sam, begging your pardon, sir, but I meant no wrong to you, Mr. Frodo, nor to Master Gandalf, for that matter. He's concerned about his loyalty. He's concerned about his service. He's concerned about that relationship, that master-servant relationship that he has with Frodo and to a lesser degree with Gandalf. He has been a good hobbit, capital G, capital H. And then when Frodo says, but it seems I cannot trust anyone, Sam looked at him unhappily. But then Mary puts in because Mary has also been responsible. And it is kind of Mary's place to put in because Sam is still a servant. Mary is going to do the right thing. He is going to act as a noble hobbit, and he is going to protect this this valorous and valiant servant. You can trust us to stick with you through thick and thin to the bitter end, and you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, frodo anyway, there it is that anyway, there it is has always spoken to me of a sudden self-consciousness from mary Mary is particularly wry, even by the standards of hobbits. He tends to turn to humor and a certain kind of self-amusement more readily than even the other hobbits do, and that is a primary hobbit trait. And I've always read that anyway. There it is as a moment of sudden embarrassment. He has just declared something very true and very powerful and done so without any artifice whatsoever. And then he kind of, well, you know, that's it. that's what I wanted to say. We are your friends. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. We are resolved. And here we see the quiet courage of hobbits. Not that they are unafraid, not crucially that they are ignorant, which is Important in the context of our conversations about the isolationist nature of the Shire, the Shire does not know about the world beyond, but these hobbits do. They know, if not the detail of the entire quest, they know the danger that they face. They know that this is going to mean hardship and death. They know, presumably, that this may not be a there and back again journey. But nonetheless, they are going to stick with Frodo they are his friends they are his community they are his fellowship even before the fellowship is actually forged at rivendell they are loyal to him and this is just incredibly powerful i mean just just beautiful as errol says here is there a better example of friendship and loyalty in the world than the friendship and loyalty mary Pippin and especially sam show frodo true true as Becca says, this is just such beautiful friendship. More stories need these kinds of friends. I am going to I am going to engage in some dirty pool. I am going to, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to it, is the point. I am going to break your hearts by the time that we get to the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, because when the Fellowship is sundered, and I will go into no more detail than that, I will remind you of this conversation. And I will remind you, this is what I mean about paying very close attention to Merry and Pippin as characters, because... This will remain true in their characterization all the way to the end of the book, all the way to the last event in the book. This loyalty and and fidelity and fraternity will be true. We won't always reference it, but it will be clear in their characterization if you read closely enough that they are thinking of Frodo in these terms and that this is an act of unassailable courage, but it is still the courage of hobbits. They are afraid We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you. And then Sam, of course, makes an appeal to authority. Sam makes the only appeal to authority that Sam is likely to make beyond the uh, the authority, the kind of, um, I was going to say secular, which I think is actually an interesting kind of inadvertent connection that I have drawn there in my subconscious mind. But he would appeal to the authority of Frodo and certainly would appeal to the the authority of Gandalf and appeal in general to the authority of, of... This, you know, increased social hierarchy. But here he turns to the ultimate, unassailable authority—the authority that holds sway in times of story. The elves. Remember what Gilder said. Take them as you can trust. And Frodo, of course, agrees. "You're a set of deceitful scoundrels," he said, turning to the others. But bless you, he laughed, getting up and waving his arms. "I give in. I will take Gilder's advice. If the danger were not so dark, I would dance for joy. Even so, I cannot help feeling happy, happier than I have felt for a long time. I have dreaded." this evening. This is a moment of such, such kindness and grace and, and humanity. Hobbitanity. No, that's horrible. Humanity. <laughs> Good. As Errol says, even as Mary Pippin are still thinking bad things will happen to them, have bad things happen to them, they're still thinking of Frodo that is amazing to me. Yes. Good. All right. Oh, as Karen says, oh, this is, this is heartbreaking. As Karen says, the optimism of hobbits is almost boundless, but the darkness ahead, oi. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, let's keep moving on here um, and get our second song because we are about to call farewell to hearth and hall. Farewell we call to hearth and hall, the the wind may blow and rain may fall, we must away ere break of day, far over wood and mountain tall, to Rivendell where elves yet dwell and glades beneath the misty fell, through moor and waste we ride in haste, and whither then we cannot tell, with foes ahead behind us dread, beneath the sky shall be our bed, until at last our toil be past, our journey done, our errand sped, we must away, we must away, we ride before the break of day. It is said outright in the prose prefacing this song that this is an echo of the Misty Mountain song from The Hobbit. And I love that the essence of the Misty Mountain song, we're clearly quoting directly, we must away, ear break of day. I love that the, the grandeur of the Misty Mountain song and the Ability of the Misty Mountain Song to be inspiring and transportive has also been reduced to more Hobbit-compatible terms. Here we're not talking about destiny, and we're not talking about conflict, and we're not talking about we're not talking about the the great undertakings of of a royal line as we were in the Misty Mountain Song in the Hobbit. Here we're talking about much smaller things. Farewell, we call to hearth and hall. The wind may blow and rain may fall. We must away or break of day far over wood and mountain tall to Rivendell where elves yet dwell and glades beneath the misty fell. Through moor and waste we ride in haste and whither then we cannot tell. Well, all of this is just accounting for a journey. All of this is just about, I mean, travel. None of this sounds too bad. Yes, wind may blow, rain may fall. We're going to be fine. We're going to pass through the woods. We're going to go over the mountains. Though, I mean, technically, we're not actually going to cross any mountains on the path to Rivendell, but, you know, scansion is a thing, so that's fine. And whither then we cannot tell. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know we're going to Rivendell. We know that elves yet dwell there in glades beneath the misty fell, which, by the way, is a very optimistic thing. That is a good thing that elves yet dwell in Rivendell. But then we get this turn with foes ahead behind us, dread. Beneath the sky shall be our bed. Okay, so there's danger ahead and there's danger behind, and we are afraid but we will sleep beneath the sky and everything will be fine until at last our toil be passed, our journey done, our errand sped. We must away, we must away, we ride before the break of day. This is optimistic, but it's not optimistic in the way that the Misty Mountains Cold Song was optimistic. It's not optimistic in the sense of here we undertake the great task of our generation. Here we go to wrest our gold and jewels from him. Here we undertake the calling of our people. This is great with a capital G. There's none of that here. This is just, well, we're going on a journey, but we do get that hint of darkness with foes ahead, behind us, dread. Beneath the sky shall be our bed. It's fine. We're gonna sleep under the star, we're gonna sleep under the stars as we have many times before when we were walking through the Shire. This is not actually gonna be that bad. And most importantly, here we get no acknowledgement of Frodo's secret fear that his will not be a there and back again journey. Rather, we get this idea of, of fulfillment until at last our toil be passed, our journey done our errand sped we must away we must away we ride before the break of day well we've just got to do the thing we've just got to take it to rivendell it's going to be fine and that may well be the case that may well be the path that this journey takes but frodo has already been fearful that that is not the case and certainly it is intimated i think in, in merry's speech that he too is somewhat suspicious of that i will call out to that right after this frodo says well i guess we better go to bed we're leaving before the break of day and pippin says Oh, that was poetry, said Pippin. Did you really mean to start before the break of day? We talked all the time back in The Hobbit about the difference between prose and poetry. And let me tell you, we will talk before the end of today's session about the difference between prose and poetry. Poetry is metaphorical. It is grand. It is not supposed to be taken literary. Yes, says Pippin. I will sing this song with you. We must ride before the break of day. Actually, I'm going to sleep until 11, then have like a brunch, maybe like a mimosa, and then we can set off. Is that cool? I mean, that's what we're all meaning, right? When Frodo takes the song literally, it surprises Pippin. And I think that Frodo taking the song, taking the poetry literally is somewhat important, because Merry and Pippin, and to an extent, Sam, have been changed by Bilbo, by Bilbo's legend, by Bilbo's presence, by the way that Bilbo has warped the culture of the Shire. But Frodo has actually seen it firsthand. Frodo has entered more fully into the realm of poetry than any of these other hobbits have. And this, I think, is true. And I only caught this this time reading the book. I think that Frodo uses poetry in a different way and and, and responds to poetry in a different way than any of the other hobbits, and perhaps even any of the other characters in the book. He takes poetry much more literally. Remember when Gilder appears with all of his fellow elves and they are singing the Elbereth-Gilthoniel song and Frodo acknowledges, oh, they're high elves. They're singing about Elbereth. They're singing Gilthoniel. This, this must mean that this is what they are. And I'm not sure that any of the other hobbits, even if they had known that intellectually, if they'd been able to draw that, that rational connection, would have been cued by the poem in quite the same way or by the song in quite the same way. Good. Okay, let me see here. Oh, Kate is taking off. Got to run. Family vacation. My nieces and nephews just got back from the pool. So all this craziness here. Kate, thank you so much for, for joining us. I hope you have a good afternoon. Yes. And Kimberly points out here, the song is smaller, but ultimately the adventure will be larger than in The Hobbit. Yes, of course. By the time we're done with The Lord of the Rings, the, uh, the adventure of The Hobbit will seem parochial. It will seem prosaic almost. Yes. And Katie asks, I wonder if Bilbo introduced the Misty Mountain song to Hobbits. Yes, presumably. um, We don't actually know for sure, but we must remember that the book, The Hobbit, there and back again, A Hobbit's Adventure, A Hobbit's Holiday, whatever it's subtitled in your particular version, is an existing text within the bounds of The Lord of the Rings. Bilbo did actually write that book. That is the book that Mary refers to in part here, along with presumably the opening of The Lord of the Rings 2. So that book exists, Mary has sneaked a peek at it, but we also know that Bilbo has been telling stories. So yes, it is most likely that he recited the Misty Mountain song uh, at every opportunity. Certainly I would, if I could. Good. Wow. Shane asks a very large and important question. Uh, does this taking of poetry mean that Frodo is already transcending hobbit- hobbithood to become one of the wise? Gosh, that is a very large question, Shane. Um. I will limit myself to this answer and no more. Um I wouldn't draw such a stark connection between hobbithood and being capital W wise. I do not think that there is anything about hobbit nature that precludes the possibility of again capital W wisdom. Now, if you mean that he is becoming great I, I'm not sure it's about I'm not sure it's about greatness. I'm not sure it's about big versus small in that sense. Certainly poetry is the language of the wider world prose is the language of the shire and a few other folks besides but we will see other characters who have managed to integrate poetry into their lives we might think of aragorn for example who who wields poetry as if it were a weapon we will see elrond and 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 in fact all of the elves in fact are capable of doing this the men of gondor less so the men of rohan less so you know we there are there are different approaches here but i do think that a connection to poetry is a connection to magic is a connection to i mean ultimately the song of creation that might be where that kind of of poetic interpretation that 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 openness to magic gets us that we are somehow closer to the world i think tolkien might indeed assert that the natural language of the world, of, of arda, of creation, is poetry, is, is metaphor and, and imagery and a kind of uh, a non-literal appreciation of the world, of the world around, uh, you know, really relying on that metaphor as magic idea. And that prose is, if you like, the ordered and consistent creation of society. No bad thing in and it of itself, but a balance must be struck. Yes. Angela asks, where is Bilbo's book? Bilbo took it to Rivendell. Don't worry. We'll see it again. Um, Yes. (laughs) Errol says, I think Frodo is the wisest hobbit. His conversations with Faramir and the Two Towers are mind-blowing. Yes, yes, yes. Good. All right. Let's keep pushing on here because before we conclude this chapter, in fact, we do have an interesting um, and, and kind of an open question, I suppose. This is Frodo's dream. When at last he got to bed, Frodo could not sleep for some time. His legs ached. He was glad he was riding in the morning. Eventually, he fell into a vague dream in which he seemed to be looking out of a high window over a dark sea of tangled trees. Down below among the roots, there was the sound of creatures crawling and snuffling. He felt sure they would smell him out sooner or later. Then he heard a noise in the distance. At first, he thought it was a great wind coming coming over the leaves of the forest. Then he knew it was not leaves, but the sound of the sea far off, a sound he had never heard in waking life, though it had often troubled his dreams. Suddenly he found he was out in the open. There were no trees at all. He was on a dark heath and there was a strange salt smell in the air. Looking up, he saw before him a tall white tower standing alone on a high ridge. A great desire came over him to climb the tower and to see the sea. He started to struggle up the ridge toward the tower, but suddenly a light came in the sky and there was a noise of thunder. This is a pretty complicated dream as such things go. And I'm now aware that I am only concluding chapter five and I probably can't spend too long on this dream today. But one of the interesting things that we learn while studying the writing of the Lord of the Rings is that this dream is only a fragment of a much longer dream that Frodo was supposed to have later in the story. It is supposed to, theoretically, though this is not, you know... uh, Hmm, This is not a spoiler because the degree to which this remains true in the book is actually a point of open speculation. This is supposed to relate to Gandalf's absence. This is supposed to relate to the underlying reason why Gandalf is not in the story at this point. And for those of you who have read the book before, the tower is said by some to represent Orthanc. That seems to me to be completely untrue. I'm not sure where you would get that idea in that Orthanc is famously a black tower and this is a white tower and Orthanc does not stand on a ridge. We get a very clean description of where you can find Orthanc later in the book. So I'm not sure that that interpretation is really valid. The line that is of most interest to me comes from the sea. Then he knew it was not leaves but the sound of the sea far off, a sound he had never heard in waking life though it had often troubled his dreams. And here's the question that I would ask. Has the sound of the sea really troubled Frodo in his dreams through all his life? Or within this dream is Frodo remembering that the sound of the sea has troubled his dreams? Has he ever dreamed of the sea before or is this just one of those weird dream logic things where within this dream he is remembering the experience of having other dreams a kind of a kind of dream world deja vu if you like. The call of the sea to Frodo is crucial. It is crucial that he cannot, at this point, see it. He gets the salt smell in the air, which we can readily identify, but of course Frodo has no means of readily identifying. He wants to behold the sea. He wants to climb the tower and see it for himself, but he can't, but he doesn't. Let's keep that in mind as we move forward, as we get all the way, in fact, to the end of of Frodo's story. And with that, let's push into the next chapter because we still have a lot of ground to cover. Um, I'll just move right on to the next uh, chapter here. When we get the description of our hobbits setting out from Brandy Hall on their ponies, five ponies, four for the hobbits themselves and one for supplies. They come under the cut in the hedge, which is, as I noted earlier, a thing of brick and then the, the wrought iron gate. This is the person level barrier against the threats of the old forest the hedge is the natural barrier against a natural enemy or something which is perceived as a natural enemy and then we get our first account really of the old forest our first direct obviously the construction of the hedge itself is an implicit account of the threat of the old forest but this is the explicit account there said mary you have left the shire and are now outside on the edge of the old forest are the stories about it true asked pippin "'I don't know I don't know what stories you mean,' Mary answered. "'If you mean the old bogey stories "'fatty's nurses used to tell him "'about goblins and wolves and things of that sort, "'I should say no. "'At any rate, I don't believe them. "'But the forest is queer. "'Everything in it is very much more alive, "'more aware of what is going on, so to speak, "'than things are in the Shire. "'And the trees do not like strangers. "'They watch you. "'They're usually content merely to watch you "'as long as daylight lasts, lasts and don't do much. "'Occasionally, the most unfriendly ones "'may drop a branch or stick a root out "'or grasp at you with a long trailer.' "'but at night things can be most alarming. "'Or so I'm told. "'I have only once or twice been in there after dark, "'and then only near the hedge. "'I thought all the trees were whispering to each other, "'passing news and plots along in an unintelligible language, "'and the branches swayed and groped without any wind. They do say the trees do do actually move "'and can surround strangers and hand them in. "'In fact, long ago they attacked the hedge. "'They came and planted themselves right by it "'and leaned over it, "'but the hobbits came and cut down hundreds of trees "'and made a great bonfire in the forest "'and burned all the ground in a long strip east of the hedge. "'After that the trees gave up the attack.' they became very unfriendly. There was still a wide, bare space not far inside where the bonfire was made. The trees attacked the hedge. Is it true to say that the forest attacked the hedge, or is it true to say that forests expand to fill natural habitat? When the hedge was planted, did it occupy open space? Was there just empty land, empty plain between the forest and the river? Well, maybe, or was the forest burned back in the construction of the hedge in the first place, in the planting of the hedge, in the tending of the hedge in the first place? Well, now, whatever the case, we have made an enemy of the forest, at least if the stories are true. Oh, Dylan is asking, bogey? Uh, bogey is an old English word meaning a, a, a kind of goblin or a hobgoblin. They are um, nefarious fairies who haunt the dark. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, do, do you bogey? Boogeyman in the U.S. I think that's maybe the uh, the equivalent that it's also sprung from the same etymology. But yes, uh, bogey stories are just, you know, fairy tales. That's basically, he means fairy tales of a, a dark and and uh, and frightening nature. Basically the, the fairy tale equivalent of horror stories. Yes. Good, good. <laughs> um, Gildart says, it's safe to say that these trees have it out for living things bitter about the flames. Yes, and it is interesting that in the account that we get of the... Um, of the bonfire glade when we get there we're told um no tree grew there only rough excuse me only rough grass and many tall plants stalky and faded hemlocks and wood parsley fireweed seeding into fluffy ashes and rampant nettles and thistles a dreary place but it seemed a charming and cheerful garden after the close forest so yes there is certainly the sense that the forest still bears this enmity we should also um yeah, and Pete calls that here in the YouTube chat. Mary seems totally fine, excepting the trees could be friendly or unfriendly. Odd for a hobbit. Yes, though not entirely odd for a bucklander. Not not inter- uh, not terribly odd for a brandy buck. Um, I do think that the close association with the old forest has caused those tales probably to have more weight and to spread a little further here than they would in other parts of the Shire. And as Mary says, he has been in. And that's actually... A kind of subtly important point, they pass under the hedge through a gate. Gates are designed to admit, you know, they they protect, certainly, but they also allow passage. So the hobbits are going into the forest. They do have something of a relationship with the forest. The hedge exists not as a permanent barrier, the way that a wall would, for example, but rather as a kind of, as a kind of natural barrier against the existence of the forest itself, not individual plants, not individual trees, but the forest as a gestalt entity, you know, the forest as an awareness and as a presence and as a personality. Now, the degree to which the the forest has a personality is questionable. Certainly, we will get a perspective on this when we get to Fangorn later in the book. And we already have a perspective on this, thanks to our time in Mirkwood in The Hobbit. But the Old Forest is a little more complex and a little more interesting, I think, than than our depiction of Mirkwood. And in part, that's simply because the Old Forest remains uncorrupted. The Old Forest is pure, angry, but pure. I do want to note that... um, we are about to go into the Withywindle Valley, and, and Withywindle is one of these lovely little uh, little bits of etymological fun that Tolkien has through the books, because Withy is the old English word for willow, and and Windle here meaning a a um, a spindle, a, a kind of a, a snarled spiral of something. So yeah, so even the Withywindle is already foreshadowing the the roots and the branches and the action and movement of Old Man Willow, and of course Old Man Willow himself. Yes, good. I did say gestalt, Fina, thank you. Yes, yes, a German word. The German language has given us many, many, many useful words. I am a huge fan of the German language, yes. The the technicality and precision of the German language, particularly as it relates to, to studies of philosophy, I think is, is inordinately valuable. They have contributed a great deal. German, the German language has contributed a great deal to, to philosophical discussion. I'm a big fan. And, of course, as was Tolkien. Tolkien loved German and Teutonic languages. He loved the, the origins of... of that kind of, of mid-European language clusters, you know, he was much more suspicious of the Romance languages. He he liked good old, you know, Anglo-Saxon and Teutonic languages much more Norse languages too. Um, Yes, uh, Karen also says, uh, the tower from which one can see the sea is a recurring notion for J.R.R. Tolkien. He uses it memorably in his most important work of criticism, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics. That is absolutely true. There is an autobiographical detail too about J.R.R. Tolkien that he would dream of the tower himself and, and also in, in close association would dream of Atlantis. He would dream of lands sinking beneath the wave. So it's possible that there is some conflation there. It was in earlier versions of the Lord of the Rings supposed to be simply much more literal. He was actually dreaming of gandalf he, he was just dreaming about what was happening to gandalf interspersed with actual events that he was experiencing at the time which were the fault of a character who is no longer in the book uh, or at least no longer in the book in his original form we'll probably trot, uh, talk about uh, trotter the halfling ranger the the hobbit ranger when we get to him later yes it's uh yeah sometimes we we you know make good changes um with the Windle Valley, says Princess Alstrich, reminds me of tra la la That's very interesting. Yes, that's good. And Fina says, I keep misspelling Alistair, so sorry. Honestly, don't worry about it. I don't even notice it. Any spelling is completely acceptable. Good. Um, okay, let's keep going because we need to get to uh, the singing, the singing, because we've already seen twice now Twice in the last chapter, singing being used to raise the spirits. And this is, of course, a hobbity trait. Hobbits do this all the time. They sing to express joy and they sing to raise their spirits. So we get the Water Hot song, and then we get our version of the Misty Mountain Cold song. And now we get another version. Frodo tried to sing a song to encourage them, but his voice sank to a murmur. O wanderers in the shadowed land, despair not, for though dark they stand, all woods there be must end at last, and see the open sun go past, the setting sun, the rising sun, the days end, or the day begun, for east or west all woods must fail, fail. Even as he said the word, his voice faded into silence. The air seemed heavy and the making of words wearisome. Just behind them a large branch fell from an old overhanging tree with a crash into the path. The trees seemed to close in before them. They do not like all that about ending and failing, said Mary. I should not sing any more at present. Wait until we get to the edge, and then we'll turn and give them a rousing chorus. The power of song to penetrate the forest is limited. We have seen songs. Remember that when they were being um, hunted by the Black Rider, the hobbits raised their voice in song, and it was only the keening of the Black Rider that shut them up from doing a second verse. But here, the song itself falters. The song itself cannot continue. Frodo cannot bring the magic of poetry, bring the magic of song here. And I think that the reason that the magic of song falters within the bounds of the old forest is that Hobbit songs are of a different order or of a different magnitude. Either Hobbit song is incompatible with the native music of of the old forest, and of course we're going to get an example of the native music, possibly, I may be leaping to an unfortunate conclusion there, but I would argue an example of the native music of the Old Forest in just a little bit when we're introduced to Tom. But it's also possible that the Hobbit song is just so small, that the Hobbit song is so simple. O wanderers in the shadowed land, despair not, for though dark they stand, all woods there be must end at last and see the open sun go past. I am reminded of Gollum's riddles, in chapter five of the hobbit of riddles in the dark when he asserts that beyond the bounds of everything there is darkness and Bilbo responds to this by saying that no 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 beyond the bounds of of this cave and this mountain there is light we get the day's eye riddle we get the sun in the high place said to the sun in the low place that's or the um, yeah and <laughs> misquoting riddles from riddles in the dark this is a terrible thing to happen to someone um this seems to be of a similar kind of order, that here Frodo is asserting that beyond the forest there is light, there is life, the open sun go past, you know, there, there, there is, is air again, just as there was when they encountered the bonfire glade and look up and realize, oh wait, the sky is blue, the sun is still up there, this is fine, just as it was when Bilbo climbed to the top of the tree in Mirkwood and realized that the sun was still shining, there is a light beyond the darkness, and the trees do not like that. Though, of course, we wouldn't necessarily want to draw the same associations between light and darkness as we did in Markwood, where the darkness is explicitly evil and malevolent, or even in the caves beneath the Misty Mountains, where the darkness is representative, at least, of Gollum's nature, of of Gollum's hatred and fear and greed. Um, Oh, as Marianne says, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's a lovely poll. You're absolutely right. Good what makes a song strong in magic says shane the rhyme scheme the content the perspective well let's consider that as we move on to meet tom because tom's poetry is very very different and i suppose okay let me frame it like this when i said that poetry is the natural language of the world and prose is the language of society and order and culture And therefore, hobbits are the most prosy. Hobbits do not go in for poetry at all, apparently. They will go in for songs, for drinking songs and things of that sort. But then they're very simple. And the the poetry that we get is kind of muscular and direct. It's not terribly metaphorical. It's not terribly imaginative. It is a a simple accounting. Think back to the Water Hot song, for example. It asserts things which are absolutely true. There is no metaphorical language contained within that poem. Hardly any metaphorical language contained within that poem. And what there is, is simple kind of representational metaphor. But think about the elves and think about the kinds of songs that the elves sing. Think about even the dwarf songs, which occupy a position slightly more elven word than the hobbits themselves. And then, of course, when we're introduced to to man, when we're introduced to humans in the course of the story, we'll see where they fall too. That is all to say that it is not a clean divide. It is not a a dichotomy between poetry and prose. It is instead a spectrum, right? There are more prosy kinds of poems, and there are more poetic kinds of prose and At the extreme end, you will get someone like the Gaffer, you will get someone like Hamfast Gamgee, who speaks entirely in prose. And at the furthest end, you will get someone like Tom Bombadil, who speaks entirely in poetry. It may simply be that Hobbit poetry, by and large, is very, very prosy. And I think that that matches absolutely our experience. There is a textural difference between what we see from hobbits in terms of poetry and song and what we see from elves in terms of poetry and song. And what we see from even the distinction between, you know, the, the cultured elves of, of Gildor's group and the the lolly elves back in The Hobbit, for example. And then at the furthest end, we get Tom Bombadil. So is there a poetry to, is there a, a music, is there a song to the old forest that the hobbits are possibly you know offending it's as if they got up at, at some you know poetry evening some open mic poetry night and started just reading from a textbook well there's no poetry there there's no magic there what are you doing and the magic of the old forest swamps what pitiful limited magic the hobbits have in their songs possibly possibly let's get to tom and find out or in fact before we get to tom we should probably account for uh, tom's presence here the hobbits began to feel very hot There were armies of flies of all kinds buzzing around their ears, and the afternoon sun was burning on their backs. At last, they came suddenly into a thin shade. Great gray branches reached across the path. Each step forward became more reluctant than the last. Sleepiness seemed to be creeping out of the ground and up their legs. I just realized that I shared the wrong wrong screen there. I am so sorry. What I meant to click was that one. You just got a glimpse of what my crazy setup looks like here as I'm doing it. Uh, I apologize for that, video audience. Audio audience, you don't know what just happened. The Hobbits he said, retracing his steps, began to feel very hot. There were armies of flies of all kinds buzzing around their ears and the afternoon sun was burning on their backs. At last they came suddenly into a thin shade. Great gray branches reached across the path. Each step forward became more reluctant than the last. Sleepiness seemed to be creeping out of the ground and up their legs and falling softly out of the air upon their heads and eyes. Frodo felt his chin go down and his head nod. Just in front of him, Pippin fell forward onto his knees. Frodo halted. It's no good, he heard Mary saying. Can't go another step without rest. Must have nap. It's cool under the willows, less flies. But this, come on, he cried. We can't have a nap yet. We must get clear of the forest first. But the others were too far gone to care. Beside them, Sam stood yawning and blinking stupidly. Suddenly, Frodo himself felt sleep overwhelming him. His head swam. There now seemed hardly a sound in the air. The flies had stopped buzzing only a gentle noise on the edge of hearing a soft fluttering as of a song half whispered seemed to stir in the boughs above he lifted his heavy eyes and saw leaning over him a huge willow tree old and hoary enormous it looked its sprawling branches going up like right, like reaching arms with many long-fingered hands its knotted and twisted trunk gaping in wide fissures that creaked faintly as the boughs moved The trees the leaves excuse me fluttering against the bright sky dazzled him and he toppled over lying where he fell upon the grass so what is the essence of magic here what is the the spell if spell it is that is currently afflicting the hobbits i think we get a pretty clear answer here in the the passage itself Suddenly Frodo felt uh, himself felt sleep, overwhelming him. His head swam. There now seemed hardly a sound in the air. The flies had stopped buzzing, only a gentle noise on the edge of hearing a soft fluttering as of a song half whispered. It seems to me that old man Willow is singing to the hobbits, is luring them to sleep. Yes. I do apologize for the mistake with the screens. Yes. It's, it's pretty horrifying. I've been doing this a long time so I can pretty much keep everything straight, but yeah, it's, uh, it's not pretty. I do apologize for that. Um, Yes, Dylan the Joel says, don't fall asleep in Middle Earth. Nothing good ever comes of it. That is very fair, particularly if you feel you ought not to fall asleep, then you should probably not fall asleep. Falling asleep will generally lead you to bad things like being imprisoned by the elves or being drawn into the body of Old Man Willow. Before we... um. Oh, I will note something here because this is oftentimes called out by Sam fans, hashtag Sam fans. Beside them, Sam stu- stood yawning and blinking stupidly, stupidly here, not used in a critical sense. The root of, of stupid it simply means insensible, that St- Sam is not reactive. Sam is is passive here. He is not stupid in the sense of of unintelligent or ignorant. Here he is stupid in the sense of being stupefied. He has been rendered insensible by the spell that has settled upon him out of the air upon their heads and eyes. I love that. I will also commend here the mastery of Mary's dialogue. It's no good. Can't go another step for that rest. Must have nap. It's cool under the willows, less flies. We can hear the heavy fatigue in Mary's voice. Mary, who is usually so beautifully eloquent, but not now, not under this, this effect. Princess Ostrich says, this is the bad kind of hay fever. I must admit, I thought that too. I've been struggling with allergies. You may still be able to hear this in my voice. I've been struggling with allergies a little bit this week. And yes, I thought the same thing. I will show you before we uh, push on. This is not often seen, but I love it very, very much. This is Tolkien's actual depiction of Old Man, Windle, uh, of old man Willow excuse me, and the Windle beyond. This is his conception of, of what the willow looked like I love it. If you haven't looked up Tolkien's poetry, you definitely, definitely should, because he was very talented. He was an extremely gifted artist as well as an extremely gifted storyteller, of course. So from there, we will move on. I am really running out of time, you guys. I might actually just... Yeah, you know what? Let's maybe do one more slide, and then I will put a pin in Tom Bombadil, and we'll just do all of Tom next week. Does that sound good? Does that sound good? Yes. Princess All Street says, "I love Tolkien's art." And Shane says, "Oh, creepy picture! Like he's casting a spell." Yes. <laughs> and his guild art says, "Beautiful, old man Willow Rosenberg." Just for your Tolkien Buffy mashups. There, good, good. So we get yeah because I want to talk a little about Sam. So let's maybe just do this one last slide and then we'll wrap it up and we'll do all of Tom next week. How about that? Sam sat down and scratched his head and yawned like a cavern. He was worried. The afternoon was getting late, and he thought this sudden sleepiness uncanny. There's more behind this than sun and warm air, he muttered to himself. I don't like this great big tree. I don't trust it. Hark at it singing about sleep now. That won't do at all. He pulled himself to his feet and staggered off to see what had become of the ponies. He found that two had wandered on a good way along the path. He had just caught them and brought them back toward the others when he heard two noises. One loud, and the other soft, but very clear. One was the splash of something heavy falling into the water. The other was a noise like the snick of a lock when a door quietly closes fast. He rushed back to the bank. Frodo was in the water close to the edge and a great tree root seemed to be over him and holding him down, but he was not struggling. Sam gripped him by the jacket and dragged him from under the root and then with difficulty hauled him onto the bank. Almost at once he woke and coughed and spluttered. Do you know, Sam, he said at length, that beastly tree threw me in. I felt it. The big root just twisted round and tipped me in. You were dreaming, I expect, Master Frodo, said Sam. You shouldn't sit in such a place if you feel sleepy. Sam's resistance here is curious, particularly given his stupidity in the last slide, his insensibility in the last slide. Sam sat down and scratched his head and yawned like a cavern, but he was worried. The afternoon was getting late, and he thought this sudden sleepiness uncanny. There's more behind this than sun and warm air, he muttered to himself. I don't like this great big tree. I don't trust it. Harkin it's singing about sleep now. This won't do at all. And then what does he do? How does he take action here? And again, we get a reference to Old Man Willow singing. This is the song of Old Man Willow, the song, in effect, of the old forest itself. Yes, as Katie says, I love that Sam can seemingly understand the words of Old Man Willow's spell. Yes, he seems to have that influence. Frodo, too, could kind of sense it. Not the words, perhaps, but but the intent. As Marianne says, Sam has common sense. Yes, that's a very good point. But Sam too is safe. Yes, Lynn, I think, hits it right here in the YouTube chat. Sam, so practical and matter of fact. Because what he does, having recognized that this is uncanny, having recognized that this is supernatural, what does he do? He pulls himself to his feet and staggers off to see what has become of the ponies. He doesn't check on Frodo. He doesn't check on Merry. He doesn't check on Pippin. He goes after the ponies because that, in part, is his job. He is going to work. He is driven forward by a sense of duty. He is going to be a good servant. He's going to take care of the ponies. And it is only when he hears the splash of something falling into the water that he returns. And I think that there is something about Sam's duty that drives him forward here he takes care of the ponies. Then when he sees Frodo, you'll note there's no more thought of sleep. One was the splash of something heavy falling into the water. The other was a noise like the snick of a lock when a door quietly closes fast. Fast here in the archaic sense, quietly closes securely. It is, it is absolutely closed. It doesn't close swiftly. It doesn't quietly close swiftly. It is quietly closed absolutely. Then Sam rushes back to the bank. Frodo's in the water close to the edge. A great tree root seemed to be over him and holding him down, but he was not struggling. Sam gripped him by the jacket, dragged him out from under the root, and then with difficulty hauled him onto the bank. Almost at once, he woke. There's no more reference here to Sam feeling sleepy. But then he does say, you were dreaming, I expect, Master Frodo. You shouldn't sit in such a place if you feel sleepy. What is that, Sam? Because you just saw Frodo fall asleep next to next to the willow, not actually, you know, terribly close to the edge of the river. Then you heard the splash and you saw the root holding him down. Sam here has entered into a realm of magic in much the same way as Bilbo entered into a realm of magic back in Mirkwood, but he can't quite process it. The idea that the root could have tripped him, uh, tipped Frodo into the water and then proceeded to hold him down does not match Sam's understanding of the natural world, even though it does seem to be an absolutely fair account. Fast as in fasten, says Karen Ruff. Yes, that is the etymological root. Excellent. Excellent. Angela asks, is Old Willow connected to the ants? This is a question that will make much more sense, I think, when we reach the ants, um, because we'll be able to look back at a few things in the story and talk about that. Um, broadly, uh, no. No, I'm going to say that he's not connected to, but I will say that... Hmm... I think that when we get the account of the ants, we can trace a common lineage from a certain point back to Old Man Willow. Yes. Um, good, okay. Uh, Becca says, Sam really does form beautiful connections with his ponies, even if it is duty. Well, this is the thing. I don't think that that to credit Sam with a great sense of duty is by no means to diminish Sam. Duty is... Again, another one of these unfashionable virtues. We're not supposed to do things because we should. We're supposed to do things because they're right or because we want to or because whatever. But duty is a classical virtue. It really is. And Sam's adherence to his duty and the emotional bonds that he forms through that duty are true are enormously powerful and speak very well to sam's character he is again a good hobbit capital g capital h he is a good person capital g capital p he is he is an embodiment of the kind of medievalistic virtues that tolkien respected enormously so yes it is it is true i think to say that sam does act out of duty to a certain point he also acts out of love and those two things are not incompatible those two things are in a sense the fullest realization of the other i think that for sam to love the objects of his duty or or the objects of his loyalty is completely natural and also to feel duty and loyalty to those things that he loves is also completely natural that seems to be a, a virtuous synthesis within the heart of sam gamji and and i think that that is something that we are supposed to look at very positively indeed indeed even though we generally seek to draw a distinction between those two qualities in the modern world this takes us all the way back of course to the unfashionable virtues of, of pity and condescension this is another way in which tolkien's medievalism and and kind of his victorianism too i think um may be somewhat at odds with our modern understanding of of virtue and heroism yeah we're supposed to do the right thing for abstract reasons whereas just doing your duty has kind of taken on a much darker meaning in, in the modern world we don't generally associate the the fulfillment of duty in quite in, in quite the same in quite the same virtuous terms, I, I don't necessarily want to attach any more, you know, emotionally loaded or judgmental words to that because I think that's a very complicated subject. But we don't generally regard duty in the way that Tolkien would have regarded duty, in the way that, that medievalists would would regard duty, in the way that medieval people would have regarded duty. So yeah, um, let me see where else we are. Sam is defined by his work, says Becca Eller, and uh, Ethan Hilton says, would perhaps the presence of an ant kept old uh, keep old man Willow on better behavior? Yes, possibly. That is something that we really will talk about when we reach the two towers and we we finally reach Treebeard and the other ants because we get a sense of the ants that is tragic but also very limited and very personal. They are... They are beings cast off from their role in the world. And in our pursuit of that tale, we don't spend a lot of time questioning, well, wait, what is your actual role? We think about it in these broad terms, but not in the specifics. So I will definitely delve into that when we get there. Yes, yes. Karen says, the unfashionable virtues of pity and condescension. They sound like the title of the next great social trend bestseller. <laughs> yes, I will definitely do that. 20th century, uh, Katie says, 20th century fulfillment of duty equals banality of evil. Absolutely, yes. Good I think that's very fair and indicative of the changing times in which we live, yes. And it also speaks, I think, to the necessity of care, you know, I casually mentioned the, the applicability of so many German words to our studies of philosophy, our studies of, of virtue, our studies of 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 thought itself. Because German is such a technical and specific language, we can we can draw from it very technical terms that allow us to be precise, to be meaningfully precise. And there is a problem in the Romance languages and in, in English as a mutable language. And this is something that Tolkien railed against. This is why Tolkien, by preference, would use no words that entered the English language after the year 1500. And, you know, ideally, no words that entered the English language after the Norman conquest. He preferred ancient words because ancient words were, to those who understand them, somewhat more fixed in their meaning. They were less likely to be transformed. They were less likely to be to be stretched and warped and twisted by modern culture old words are reliable in that sense and i think that it is something that we must pay close attention to whenever we're using words that have taken on different meaning or even just different connotation over the years we must try to distill out the original true meaning and see if that original true meaning had a value that has now been lost this is not an argument against you know, malleable evolving language. You know, neologistic coinage is, is vital to, to keep infusing. The world is constantly changing. Language must constantly change, or language will be left behind, and we will no longer be able to adequately describe the world. That is a truism. That is, that is simply the way that language works. But when we allow language to evolve and to change, we must check our thinking. We must we must seek to understand with greater acuity to make sure that nothing is being lost. So when we take condescension and pity to mean things which are anchored in pride, to mean things which are anchored in superiority, to mean things which are anchored in in gratitude or in smugness, then we lose a vital and important original meaning. And that that robs us of the ability to express ourselves, honestly. You know, we we should be able in the modern world to talk about condescension and pity. These things have perhaps never been more important in the modern world. Condescension and pity are vital because they speak to empathy and they speak to human connection. But we have lost our ability to talk meaningfully about those words because those words have been taken from us by what is, I think, a common and, and... Not even necessarily entirely negative impulse. I think that when you're talking about egalitarian culture, we get to talk about the problems presented to us by the notions of condescension, by the notions of duty, for example. But something has been lost in that evolution that we should be at the very least mindful of language is important and we must understand it if we are to use it well. And that was a little tangent that will take us all the way to the end of today's session, which I'm wrapping up just a minute too early because uh, just, uh, just bang on time, I suppose, because I don't know if you can hear this, dear listeners, dear viewers, but there is apparently heavy construction happening right outside my studio right now. So this is going to get worse before it gets better, I suspect. This is the perfect note upon which to end this rather ramshackle installment of There and Back Again. I have had a great deal of fun today with you all. We will definitely talk about Tom next time. We will talk about... I may be a little optimistic that we will get all the way to the end of the Barrow Downs by the end of the next session. But if we are swift, and if we maybe run a little long, we should be able to do both chapters and our introduction to Tom Bombadil from this chapter next time. That will be next week. Let me call this up so that I can confirm the time and date for you. The next session, The Fellowship of the Ring, chapters 7 and 8, brackets, and the end of chapter 6, I guess. The House of Tom Bombadil and Fog on the Barrow Downs. That will be next week thursday june 22nd also at 4 p.m the same time as this week's session i will be moving this around continually we will have another evening session again very soon i promise but that's for next week 4 p.m eastern thursday june the 22nd guys thank you all so so much for being here this has been the highlight of my week and the highlight of my birthday i dare say thank you for listening i will talk to you all again very soon until then take care